If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open it up to the book of 2 Thessalonians, the second of two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church, this group of believers in Jesus in a town called Thessalonica. We're thinking about the future, the ultimate future, uh, the life that's after this life, and last time... We focused on a truth that, honestly, we usually prefer not to think about, and that's the truth of God's wrath. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, which we've looked at a couple of times, it says that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. And if we're going to hear that, as the incredibly good news that it is, we have to have at least some understanding of what that wrath is that Jesus delivers us from if we belong to him, if we have faith in him. We need to understand why him delivering us from this coming wrath is such a great thing. God's wrath is his unrelenting, uncompromising hostility toward all evil. God will not let evil have the last word. He just won't. He is determined to eliminate it completely, and he will. And that is why we so desperately need Jesus to deliver us, because... We've all done and do things that are evil. We all think thoughts that are evil. We all cherish evil at times in our hearts. It's called sin. And because we've all sinned, we're all liable to God's wrath unless we receive his mercy and his grace in Jesus Christ, who came to bear God's wrath for us. This is the first song we were singing. Oh, the wonderful cross. Why is it wonderful? Because on that cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God for us in our place. That's why it's so wonderful. Many of you probably know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We'll look at the next two verses. Verse 17, For God did not send his son, into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Yes. But verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already or stands condemned because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. It's as if we're all drowning. There's one lifeboat named Jesus. Those who get in the lifeboat are saved those who don't perish because they have not trusted in the only lifeboat. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. That is a very uncomfortable truth. But we need to know it. And we need to let that discomfort motivate us that's what we talked about last time. We need it to motivate us to depend on Jesus. Depend on him. 
motivate us to fight sin in our lives, tooth and nail, because God hates it. And motivate us to engage in the mission Jesus gave us, to share his good news, his deliverance with the whole world. That's why we pray for unreached people groups, for example. So yeah, it's uncomfortable, but rightly understood, it's uncomfortable in a way that's really good for us. Sometimes being uncomfortable is really good for us. I don't like that a whole lot, but I know it's true. I know it's true. However, that is not the whole story of God's wrath. And what I want to show you this time is that the truth of his wrath, of this wrath to come, is meant not only to be uncomfortable in a good way, a way that's helpful for us, it is also meant to be comforting. Comforting to those who belong to Jesus. So I want you to look with me at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And here's a place where the Apostle Paul is talking more in more detail about this wrath to come. You know what, before we read it, I just want to pray. Father, these are very, very serious words, and you meant them to be heard seriously. So will you help us, Lord? Whatever might be distracting us, whatever might be preoccupying us, will you help us now set it aside and hear you? These are your words spoken through your messenger, so please give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And Paul's writing to these believers in Jesus that he, he dearly loves. And he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. So everywhere Paul goes, he's boasting about the Thessalonians. For your steadfastness and faith... Now notice, in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. You don't endure good times. You endure bad times. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints." that is, those who've been set apart because of their faith, and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So these believers in Jesus are suffering probably because of their faith in Christ. That's uh, the significance of the word 
persecutions. You might remember, if you've read there, uh, we were looking in 1 Thessalonians, when Paul talks about them coming to faith in Jesus, one of the things he says is, you turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And what that means is, they were no longer doing what was normal in their culture, which was to go to the pagan temples and offer sacrifices to the, those deities. And you know, when you take a stand against what's normal in your culture, uh, that really ticks some people off. It really does. Uh, because they, they feel like you're judging them. They feel like you're being antisocial. You're being hateful. And you know, frankly, sometimes those who profess the name of Jesus do things that are pretty stupid and hateful, and people get mad. That's not what this is. This is being faithful to Jesus, living life the way he wants you to, and it makes people mad. Um, well, we, we just saw that in praying for the currency people, that if you don't worship the idols, the spirits, you're going to make them mad, and the whole community is going to suffer for it. That's the thought. So they don't like Christians following Jesus. And this good news that Jesus died for us, that includes the really bad news that Jesus had to die for us or we would perish because of our sin. That's an offensive message. You know, to go up to somebody and say, you know what, you're so bad that Jesus had to die for you or else you'd go to hell. So that's offensive. If you, if, you, know, if you think you're a pretty good person, that's not pleasant news. So these believers in Jesus were suffering some kind of mistreatment at the hands of others. Now, here's what I want you to notice. Notice how Paul addresses their situation. They're suffering. They're being persecuted. What does he do? He directs their attention to this future day when Jesus is going to return and going to carry out God's justice. To carry out the wrath of God his unrelenting hatred of evil. Why is he doing that? Why is Paul doing that? What's his goal? As he's talking to these suffering believers, what's his aim? He wants to comfort them. He wants to encourage them. And what that tells us is that the truth of God's coming wrath should affect us in more than one way. Yes. Yes, it should make us uncomfortable. Yes. When we're tempted to be indifferent, and I will freely confess that that's a problem I have a lot, to be indifferent, to not really care that people are perishing, to not take sin all that seriously. When we're tempted to be indifferent, the truth of God's coming wrath should provoke us to engage. But there are other times when evil strikes, when evil rears its ugly head, then the truth of God's coming wrath should comfort us. So what I want to do is point out two ways that that's true, two comforting truths about this coming wrath. Now, my original plan was to talk about both of them in this message, 
And then I realized there's just way too much to say. So I'm going to break it. Uh, we're going to deal with the first comforting truth this time and save the second one for next time. So that's your invitation to come back. So let's look at the first one. Here's the first comforting truth about God's wrath, this coming wrath. It will be fair. It will be perfectly fair. Many of us, many of us struggle with the idea of eternal condemnation of hell because it seems, it feels to us like judicial overkill. Like, like somebody committing a fairly trivial offense, like, I don't know, jaywalking or something, and then getting sentenced to death for it. It, it just feels like the, the sentence is far too severe for the crime. And that's frankly how, how many of us feel about hell. It just feels like, wow, the sentence is way too severe. That is a serious misunderstanding of hell. There's actually two misunderstandings here. It, it misunderstands both the nature of the crime and it misunderstands the nature of the sentence. So I want to talk about those two things. But before I go there, before I try to explain it, I think it's really important to say this. Even if I can't explain it in a way that m makes sense or that fully satisfies all the questions we have or, or you can't explain it or somebody else can't explain it, we need to realize that any, any response that would attribute injustice to God in any way is utterly impossible. It cannot be true. Notice how this passage emphasizes the justice of God. Okay, four, four words in particular. Verse 5 refers to the righteous judgment of God. Uh, verse 6 says God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. There's the word that's translated vengeance in verse 8. And then there's the word translated punishment in verse 9. All of those terms, those four terms are all built on the same root, which is related to the word for justice. And the emphasis of this, it emphasizes that God's judgment is always just. It's always fair. It's always right. You, you may be familiar with the story back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 18, where we have this account of Abraham pleading with God to spare the people of Sodom if, if there are any righteous people living there. It's a very interesting account. And Abraham, in pleading with God, says this, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, or do what is right? And the obvious answer is, of course. Of course he will. He cannot possibly do otherwise. Romans 9, 14. Paul says, there's no injustice with God, is there? And there's this wonderful phrase, may it never be. If you have a 
Good old King James Version. God forbid. The expression there is the strongest possible way of saying, not a chance. It can't happen. It cannot happen that there would be injustice with God. I don't want to go too deep philosophically here. Actually, I really do, but I'm <laughs> going to restrain myself because the fact is the only reason there is such a thing as justice is because God exists and he's just. If God did not exist, if God were not just, justice would have no meaning, no real meaning. And when you and I complained about injustice, all we would be expressing is a personal preference. Well, I think that's unfair because I don't like it. Well, too bad. Someone over here does like it, so it's the way it goes. There's no, there's no standard. There's no ultimate standard of justice to appeal to. So justice would be meaningless. Then that's why it's so ironic when people use the, the thought that God's unjust to try to disprove existence, you basically cut off the branch you're sitting on. If there's no injustice or there's no God, there's no justice anyway. Your argument loses all force. So keep that in mind as I try to explain why, why hell is just. And if my explanation doesn't work for you, well, remember, hell is just because God says it is. If it seems unfair to us, then there's a breakdown somewhere in our understanding. And I'm not going to tell you my explanation is going to be perfect by any means, but maybe it will be helpful. So first, let's think about the nature of the crime. The punishment of hell is fair because the crime is far worse than we think it is. It's much worse than we think it is, typically. You and I simply do not see sin for what it really is. And that's mainly because we fail to see the goodness and glory and majesty of God for what it is. We fail to perceive the goodness of God and therefore we fail to see sin against him for what it really is. See, we, we often think of sin as just mistakes we make because we're human, you know, nobody's perfect. Yeah, sometimes we fail. So sometimes we fail to keep all of the rules. But that's just how it is. That does not begin to capture the ugliness of sin. That doesn't even come close. Yes, of course, breaking God's rules is sin. That is not the ultimate problem with sin. That's not the core of it. The real issue is so much deeper. The breaking of the rules is just, it's the, uh, it's the symptom it's not the disease. The ultimate reason we break his rules is because our hearts, apart from his gracious intervention, 
our hearts reject Him. Look ahead to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10. Now here, he's talking about those who never repent, who never receive His mercy. Notice what it says. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, here's God's judgment. God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in. So notice the contrast. They didn't love the truth. They refused to love the truth. What did they love instead? What did they delight instead? Unrighteousness, wickedness. The word is the same word as righteous with an un in front of it. Delighting in unrighteousness. Now, this is a vital clarification. This is vital because back in chapter 1, verse 8, it talks about Jesus inflicting vengeance on those who don't know God. And we might hear that and we think, whoa, wait a second. They're being condemned just because they're ignorant? That doesn't seem right to condemn somebody just because they've never been informed. But see, that's not what it means. That is not what it means. Their ignorance is not innocent. You know, sometimes we don't know because we choose not to. It's like those people who deny the Holocaust, the murder of six million Jews during World War II. And there are people who claim that never happened, and they deny it. Not because of a lack of evidence. The evidence is overwhelming. They don't believe it because they don't want to believe it. They're ignorant because they choose to be. And that is exactly, according to God's word, that is exactly the diagnosis of the human race responding to the knowledge of God, the evidence of God's existence. That's us. That's what we do. Take some time, and I encourage you to read through the book of Romans chapter 1, and you'll see it. The problem's not a lack of evidence. The problem is we ignore the evidence, we reject the evidence, we refuse the evidence, because we don't want there to be a God. At least not the God of reality, not the all-holy God who has the right to tell us what to do in every aspect of life, and who will hold us accountable for every single thing we do. We want to rule ourselves. You go back to the book of Genesis, that's exactly where it all started. And I don't want God telling me what to do. I don't want God telling me what's good and evil. I'll decide for myself, thank you very much. So we want to rule ourselves, therefore we disregard the evidence and then we convince ourselves the problem's with God, not with us. God hasn't done enough. God hasn't shown himself to me in a satisfactory way. As if Jesus coming into this world, doing everything he did, dying on a cross, that, no, that's insufficient. God cannot, even if he exists, he can't be trusted. And what we do is we honor God ourselves above him. 
That's what we do. That's what makes sin so awful. That's what makes it so awful. We disregard God's worth. And we, in effect, okay, whether somebody actually comes out and says it or not, that's not the point. We, in effect, tell him, you don't deserve, you don't deserve my obedience. You're not worthy of my appreciation. You're not desirable enough for me to worship. In fact, I judge you, God, to be less trustworthy, less competent to lead my life than I am. And I find other things to be more satisfying than you. I don't care what you say is good and evil. I will decide that for myself. I will be master of my fate. I will be captain of my soul. And we treat the infinitely glorious God with contempt. And because we fail to appreciate how worthy of honor God is, we fail to appreciate what a monstrous insult it is for someone to disregard him and dishonor him every day of their lives. We just don't feel it. We, we are effectively walking up to the most excellent person in the universe. So try to, try to imagine the person that you know who is most worthy of honor, most wonderful, most delightful, and, and God's more so, and going up to that person and spitting in their face. Now again, nobody, nobody thinks they do that, except for maybe a few, but that's what's going on in the heart. When that angry mob that clamored for Jesus' crucifixion and said, crucify him, crucify him, for what? When they went up to the most excellent person who had ever lived and spit in his face, they were simply acting out the impulse that's in every fallen human heart. The one person who deserved all honor and nothing but honor was despised and rejected. That's what fallen humanity does to God in our hearts every single day, whether we admit it or not. And there's more. There's more. I only have time to scratch the surface of this. But this love affair we have with ruling ourselves, that's what leads us to do all kinds of evil to other people made in God's image. Have you been online and read how people respond to each other online with the anonymity of social media? Have you read what people will say to each other created in the image of God? And we tell ourselves some sins aren't that bad because they don't really hurt anybody. That's always a lie. Every sin, every sin includes a failure to love someone a failure to act in someone's best interest, even if it's ours. So, 
the crime is far, far worse than we tend to believe. Now, let's think about the other side of it, the nature of the sentence. Hell is fair because it's not an arbitrary punishment. It's not like God just spins a wheel and whatever comes up, that's the punishment you get. It's not arbitrary. It's not like the death penalty for jaywalking. It is a just consequence that follows naturally from the nature of the crime. Now, to see this, to make sense of this, you have to realize what the nature of the sentence is. So look in at our passage again, verse 9. It says this, It is the punishment of eternal destruction. That word destruction means ruin. Eternal ruin away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, those are not two different punishments. It's not two different things. You know, as if eternal ruin is one thing and being away from the presence of the Lord is another thing. No, it's eternal ruin because of being away from the presence of the Lord. That is what makes hell, hell. Being excluded from his presence. The word there is literally the word face. And I wish I had time to show you and track in scripture all the places where it talks about his face. The ironic blessing that's in, I think, the book of Numbers. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his face to you and give you peace, shalom, wholeness. This idea of God's face and all of the goodness and all of the blessing and all of the um, health and life and everything that comes when God's look of favor is upon you. This is the opposite. Being away from God's look of favor. And see, we can't even imagine what this is like. Because even in this messed up sinful world, in our messed up sinful state, you and I have countless experiences of God's goodness every day. And many of which we take for granted. Look, you're here. You got out of bed. You woke up. Somebody said to me the other day, I said, how are you doing? He said, great. I didn't have to go to the hospital last week. And I thought, well, that's a weird thing to say. But I didn't realize this person had been really, really sick, but ended up not having to go to the hospital. And I thought, you know, actually, I could say that every day. How are you doing? Great. I'm not in the hospital. <laughs> we have countless experiences of God's goodness every single day, many of which we fail to acknowledge and give thanks for. Jesus said, God makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. He does that for now. But the day will come. The day will come when Jesus will return and he will say the absolute worst words to the unrepentant that a person could ever hear. I never knew you. Depart from me. 
And all those terrible images of hell that Jesus gave us, he talked more about it than anybody else. So it's not an unloving thing to talk about. All those terrible images, the fire that's never quenched, the worm that never dies, the corpse-eating worm, the darkness, the isolation, the weeping, all of those images are meant to convey the horrible reality of this, being excluded from the presence of the Lord. It's horrible, but it's fair because being away from the Lord's presence is exactly what sinful humanity wants. People who want nothing to do with God ultimately get their wish. You have to remember what, what it was that Jesus came to give us. So why did Jesus come? Oh, well, to die on a cross for our sins so we could be forgiven. Right. Why? What's the whole point of forgiveness? It's not being forgiven just for the sake of being forgiven. The whole point was to get our sins out of the way so that we can be with God and enjoy his face. Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. John 14, 3, Jesus said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You can be with me. 1 Thess 5, 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live, what's it say? With him. Being with him. That's the goal of salvation. That's what salvation is. That's the objective for which Christ died. That's our ultimate hope. And so if you refuse that, if you refuse to be with him, if you want eternity without him, what you're asking for is hell. Tim Keller says it like this. The worst and fairest punishment God can give a person is to allow them their sinful heart's deepest desire. Hell is therefore a prison in which the doors are first locked from the inside by us and therefore are locked from the outside. By God. People imagine that being free of God, being free of God's influence, that that would be a good thing. They have no idea what they're asking for. Hell is what justly follows when someone chooses eternal freedom from God. Theologian J.I. Packer said it like this, all receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever, worshiping him, or without God forever, worshiping ourselves. Now, 
If you hear this, and if an eternity without God sounds terrifying to you, that's really good. Be comforted, because Jesus came to deliver you from that. He offers you eternity in his presence, if you want it. He willingly took on himself the wrath that we deserve, God's unrelenting hatred of evil, and he bore it on the cross so we wouldn't have to. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to, unri- to live to righteousness. It makes me think that when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We, we just can't even grasp the depths of that agony. He was experiencing the wrath of God right then. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. So if you want God, if you want God, the incredible good news is Jesus will bring you to him. All of your sin will be fully accounted for through his cross. It's amazing. It is amazing. You just admit your need and tell him, ask him, receive him. When God's eternal justice is done, when his wrath is fully executed, you and I will not question his judgment. You and I will not wish he had done it differently. And we will not feel or believe that unrepentant people were being treated too harshly. We won't. What we will feel is relief. Glorious relief. Not grief, relief. Believe and be comforted. Let's pray. If this morning you are feeling just something of the weight of this, the terror of this, and you want the comfort that Jesus offers you, I plead with you, just ask him. Ask him for his mercy and grace. He longs for you to know it. And whether this morning the main impact is to be provoked out of apathy or to be comforted in misery, let God's truth have its way in your life. If you want to talk more about it, I'd be happy to do that. Or maybe someone you're with today would would love to talk to you. Don't just let it go. Don't blow it off.
don't think, well, that's just the words of an angry preacher. I'm not angry. I don't like talking about this any more than you like hearing about it. But Jesus shall be honored for his love and his grace and also for his justice. So don't run from him. Turn to him. Gracious Lord Jesus, move us with this truth in the direction you want us to go. You saw fit to include all of this truth in your word that we might be better off because of it. So help us think and respond and feel the way you would have us. That you might be glorified truly and that we might be good messengers of your amazing news. That you might be worshipped, we might be comforted. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.